This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 16, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, online news editor Catherine Matisik is here with a story on how ancient humans survived global volcanic winter caused by a massive volcanic eruption 74,000 years ago. And Julia Buck discusses landscapes of disgust. How do gross things like parasites and carcasses shape ecosystems? Now we have Catherine Matisik, an online editor for our daily news site. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. This story by Gretchen Vogel is about how we humans fared after an apocalyptic scenario, a volcanic winter about 74,000 years ago. What is volcanic winter, Catherine? So volcanic winter, if you have not heard of it before, is a beautiful concept. <laughs> beautiful. Uh, well, beautiful. It's very it's very sci-fi. It's, it's yeah. very artistic as long as you're not the one living in it. So basically the idea is whenever you have a volcanic eruption, ash, glass, gases, you know, will spew into the air, roll down the sides of the volcano. And when sulfur dioxide from these volcanoes enters the atmosphere, they can form aerosols that reflect the sun's rays. And so a lot of times when you have a very large volcanic eruption, you may have a localized or even global cooling event that's taken place in the recent past where we've actually been able to measure these effects. Now, when you have an eruption as big as the one that you were talking about, mm -hmm. which took place, I think it was 74,000 years ago yeah. on the island of Sumatra, the volcano Toba, when it blew its top the force was 10,000 times as powerful as the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. And so ash fell across the entire planet for almost two weeks. Wow. That sounds really scary. And, you know, we did our special issue on natural hazards. This was one on the top. It was. This was one of the things that... Could, we really had the potential for devastating all life on it, Earth. It, it, it does. And that's where the term volcanic winter comes into uh, play, because as that ash goes up into the air, as the sulfur dioxide goes up and the clouds form, they block out the sun's rays and produce a global cooling event. And what happens is two things. One, temperatures plummet. So it's almost this idea of like a reverse greenhouse effect. And two, 
all that light that's coming in from the sun is blocked, making it very, very hard for plants to engage in photosynthesis. And of course, if the plants have already been covered in piles of ashes, they're not doing so great anyway. So if one of these things is really bad, it has the potential to really, you know, just devastate life on Earth from, you know, for us humans, from an agricultural perspective. Okay, let's go back to Toba, to Mount Toba. This is this event 74,000 years ago. What do we know about the physical manifestations of this explosion on the Earth? So as I said, this was a very, very powerful explosion. And there has been evidence for this event, you know, scattered actually globally. But what's really interesting Um, in the current study is that researchers wanted to see if there was evidence of this explosion all the way down in South Africa, where there were large known human populations living at the time. How far away is that? That is, I want to say, maybe 9,000 kilometers. I looked it up and it's not quite double the width of the United States. There we go. Okay, so what kind of evidence, what kind of artifacts were they looking for in order to connect this eruption to what was happening with people at the time? So one of the two sites that researchers looked at is a place called Pinnacle Point. It's this network of caves very near the coastline where in the past scientists have found evidence of all sorts of, you know, tool making, weapons. Actually, I think it's one of the sites that has the oldest projectile weapons in the world. And of course, you know, the remains of lots of shellfish, which was a common food that people were eating there at the time. Okay. So when they look at, you know, I assume layers of material, where does volcano ash fit into this? That's exactly the question they were (laughs) trying to answer. So basically... What these researchers theorized is here's an area with, you know, lots of human activity that is documented by bones and tools and weapons. And so the idea would be is if they could identify this layer of ash, there would be far more human activity represented underneath it. Prior. Right, exactly, prior. And then higher up in the layers, there would be far fewer tools and bones and weapons. The researchers were very careful to look at key layers from these points in time that they were interested in. And at both of these sites in South Africa, they found a sprinkling of microscopic glass particles, which matched the signature for the ash that was coming from Toba. And so that's what that's how they could be so sure about the date. It's this composition as mm-hmm. well as its position within that's these layers. Right. Okay, so... Give us the answer, Catherine. What happens before the volcano and after the volcano? Surprisingly little. (laughs) Um, Actually, what was so fascinating to the researchers, and I don't know, is this a child-friendly zone? Can we use language here? (laughs) I'll I'll just put it this way. One of the researchers said it was a holy, amazing moment (laughs) when they found this layer because it matched up so well and so precisely to the dates that they were looking at. So once they found this marker, they were surprised to find that evidence of human use and habitation of this area actually intensified after the eruption. Okay, so that is evidence of it having not a big effect on at least this part of the world. But we do know that humans went through a bottleneck at this time. So there's been this idea that the human population was a certain size, 
something catastrophic happened, and it got squeezed down to a very few members, and those people became the seed of what humans are today. And a lot of people were linking that to Toba. So if Toba didn't have a huge widespread effect on human populations, does that what does that mean about, you know, our ancestors? This has been the big sticking point, and this is the thing that these researchers are in essence trying at least partially to overturn. So in 1998, a very famous anthropologist named Stanley Ambrose theorized that Toba was the event that led to this genetic bottleneck, Mm -hmm. you know, whereby there were only about 10,000 humans, our species, left on Earth. What the researchers say is that this evidence has come from other regions of the globe for this genetic bottleneck. And so perhaps there were humans living in Africa at the time who were not represented in that population. And so they say that there are a couple of ways that this could have occurred independently of the explosion. And one is simply that there was a super successful group of humans that wandered out of Africa around the same time and basically outcompeted all of the other humans that were already out there. And so that's one explanation that some of these researchers are proposing for the bottleneck. Another really interesting theory is that, remember when we were talking about the volcanic winter? Mm -hmm. So this idea that all plants and agricultural life, you know, sort of enter this period of extreme, I guess, decline. Yeah. So anyway, when that would have happened, humans being, you know, a very mobile species would have looked for other sources of food. And one of those sources of food would have been in the oceans at the coastline where the site that had increased human habitation was found. And so what some of the researchers are saying is this may in fact represent you know, not the fact that Toba did not have an impact, but maybe that it did have a slight impact in that these populations were being sort of pushed toward the ocean. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there's still a lot of debate out there about the bottleneck and how humans came to be who they are genetically now. But I just want to say no more volcanoes to test out these theories. No more eruptions to test out these theories. By, by your fiat, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, that, that'll work for me anyway. Okay, Catherine, what else is on the site this week? Well, we have a story about an interesting new purple aurora lighting up the night skies named Steve. Mm -hmm. We also have a story about strangely shaped skulls in medieval Bavaria that may point to an ancient exchange of brides with the countries of southeastern Europe. On Science Insider, our policy site, we have continuing coverage of scientists standing for office in U.S. elections, and we have our tribute to Stephen Hawking. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisek is an online editor for our daily news site. Stay tuned for Julia Buck. She talks about landscapes of disgust, a.k.a. the ecology of gross things. This episode is brought to you in part by Credible.com. Student loans can completely wipe you out if you don't get a handle on them. And how do you do that? Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing, and using their simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. Plus, you could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com magazine, answer a few quick questions, and right away you get real rates, not a range of rates, from multiple lenders. 
Credible.com is completely free to use, and checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. Think about what you could do with $19,000. And for a limited time, our listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash magazine. Pay off your student loans faster or lower your monthly payment, whatever works for you. Just go to Credible.com slash magazine. You might have heard of the landscape of fear, where a predator being present in the ecosystem has a cascade of effects on all the other organisms involved. But what about a landscape of disgust? Julia Buck and colleagues wrote a commentary piece on the subject this week. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. Great to be here. So can you just give us a little a quick overview of what people mean by the landscape of fear? I mean, I did it in four words, but I think there's a little bit more to, more to it than that. What's a good example of like how this has been demonstrated? Well, maybe the classic example is from Yellowstone National Park. So we have wolves, which were reintroduced into the park in the 1990s and have since created this landscape of fear for the elk that live there. And so what we see is that these elk are not only rarer because there are fewer of them because the wolves eat them, but also because the wolves scare them. So that's the landscape of fear. So they eat less and the trees that they eat on suddenly have a different environment that they're in. And there's just this this fallout from the presence of a predator. That's right. We get more aspen, especially around the streams and rivers. And so you get these cascading effects on the ecosystem. And that's from a wolf. So something they're afraid of. What about something that's disgusting? Can you talk about what, what you mean by disgusting in this context? Yeah. So disgust is one of six emotions that we, at least as humans, experience. But what we don't know is much about the ecological effects of this emotion. So disgust is thought to have evolved as a disease avoidance strategy. And what we in this paper are saying is that disgust might protect us from infection in the same way that fear protects us from predation. Hmm. So how does this emotion of disgust or the sense of disgust, how is that playing out, you know, across those different um, dangerous agents? So we have this emotion disgust, which for a long time confused scientists as to what the evolutionary reason for this might how did this come about? And what has become consensus over the last decade or two has been that it evolved as to help us avoid disease. There are basically four strategies by which hosts might avoid parasites, and that avoidance behavior is often motivated by disgust. For example, Pretty much all humans consider feces to be disgusting. That's across human cultures, and it seems to be innate. It's not something that your parents taught you. It's something that is ingrained in you. 
Fecal avoidance, for example, seems to be a very general phenomenon. It's not just us. It ranges all the way from lemurs to sea cucumbers. Mm -hmm. We have lots of different kinds of animals that avoid feces. And this seems to be motivated by disgust. Another example would be avoiding something that was dead, right? Like a carcass. Is that is that the same motivation? It's just disgusting somehow. Yeah, definitely. So when we see a carcass, it tends to divert our attention and you feel like you want to move away from that. And that is that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. For a lot of animals, but some some animals will run towards a carcass, right? Some of the bugs, some of the worms, and then, you know, maybe a vulture. So it's not completely universal, right? It turns out that the species that are most closely related to whatever species the carcass is will avoid it. So you're absolutely uh. right that a carcass is going to be covered in bugs. But those bugs, those maggots, those flies cannot get sick in general, from the same things that sickened that fox, for example. So the more closely related the avoider is to the species the carcass is, the more likely they are to avoid. And we see this particularly within species. So um, termites, for example, build special compartments inside their nests. And these are their graveyards. What they're doing is isolating the carcasses of their nestmates from the rest of the colony. Oh, that's really interesting. So is this something that you can test or you have to observe? I mean, have there been experiments that have tried to show the effect of um, something that is disgusting um, on the ecosystem? Yes, there are some experiments showing parasite avoidance. And the thought is that this is motivated by disgust. There's some great work happening currently with lemurs. There has been some work on trematodes and their tadpole hosts. And so Yes, there is some experimental work, but a lot of the predator-prey work was done in the past couple of decades where mm -hmm. the scientists were able to have the predator produce a cue that might elicit a response from... So like, like playing a sound, a predator's sound or something like that? A predator's sound, or often they use smell. So fish, for example, are actually quite smelly from a, from a tadpole's perspective. And so you can use the cues, the water that that fish has been in, to elicit avoidance behaviors from tadpoles. That's going to be somewhat harder with parasites, um, but it might be possible. Lots of uh, directions to explore here. Very interesting. Well, can we use this information, this idea of disgust and its effect on the ecosystem, you know, as a way of pest control or perhaps, you know, a way of conserving animals? Is there something we can do, you know, interventionally with this information? Maybe. I, I, I don't think we've quite gotten there yet in terms of applications, but the potential is there. For example, lots of different ungulates, um, meaning most of our livestock, have been shown to avoid fecal contaminated 
grass with feces on it. And so if we can give sheep the option to avoid, if we can take advantage of their ability to detect and avoid parasites, give them those opportunities, we may be able to minimize infection in our livestock. Also, predators are vanishing from ecosystems at an astonishing rate. And as they vanish, we are potentially making predator avoidance more important. So it may take on a greater relative role as a driver of animal behavior and distribution. Okay. All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Julia Buck is a National Science Foundation postdoctoral research fellow in the Ecological Parasitology Lab at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She and her colleagues write about disgusting landscapes this week in science. You can find a link to the study at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site at sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. This show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.